beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. During the last two Lord's Days, we have heard about how sinful we are by nature, that we do not love God and our neighbor, but instead, by nature, hate God and our neighbor. We have heard that this was not God's fault at all, since He created us good and upright and able to do His will. Rather, we are fully to blame for this because of the sin of Adam, our representative in the Garden of Eden. And therefore, we and our children are totally corrupt and completely unable to do any good. We are guilty. We are sinful. We are inclined to all evil. When we really stop and consider what we confess here, then it can get very depressing and bring us down in our spirits. If we dwell on who we are by nature, then we can even get down in our faith life and despair of our guilt and be overwhelmed by a guilty conscience. We have offended God so deeply with our sins. How is it ever possible to make things right again? After all, we are dead in our sins, and there seems to be no hope at all. And now in Lord's Day 4, the trend seems to continue. But the first question and answer of this Lord's Day once again shows us our guilt. Like the first question and answer of Lord's Day 3, this question tries to accuse God of something. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? How can man be expected to obey God's law completely if he is unable to do that? The answer is that God had created man capable of doing that. God had made man righteous and holy, but man in deliberate disobedience robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Man had been given everything he needed for obedience, but he squandered it all when he listened to the evil one and made himself incapable of doing God's will by robbing himself of God's good gifts. And so there seems to be more reason for despair and a gloomy outlook. But while the outlook on ourselves is indeed grim and dark, there is a bright light that is also shining in this Lord's day. And that is the light of the Lord himself. For while we are faithless, guilty, and caught in the web of sin and misery, the Lord our God shows himself to be just, righteous, good, and holy. We catch a wonderful view on God himself, who rises so high above our own weaknesses and shortcomings and reveals himself as the holy and just God who punishes sin and hates all iniquity and only wants to do what is right and good. And therefore, we ourselves may also have hope because we confess the content of this Lord's Day 
in the context of the first Lord's Day, knowing what our comfort is in life and death, that we belong to Jesus Christ, our only Savior. I proclaim to you this afternoon the Word of God under the following theme. The Lord shows His goodness and sovereignty in His wrath against sin. We will consider first the justice of God's wrath and second the good news in God's wrath. We confess in Article 1 of the Belgic Confession that God is a simple being. This attribute of God is not always so easy or simple to understand. How could God be simple? What this means is that God is someone who is internally consistent in everything that he does and in all of his attributes. He is able to be this way because he is perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He never needs to deal with internal contradictions, but he is always completely consistent in everything. This also means that there is no contradiction between God's justice and mercy, between his wrath and his love. He is angry because of his love for mankind. He is filled with wrath at the sins of mankind because he cares so deeply about mankind. And when God is merciful and loving, then he does not neglect or forget about his justice and righteousness. God never acts in disarray according to completely different measures and standards depending on different moods or times. God always acts in faithful adherence to all of his attributes. When he demonstrates his wrath, then his love does not suffer. Or when God shows his mercy, then his justice does not suffer. By contrast, for us as human beings, that may well be the case. It is not possible for us to maintain these characteristics in a completely consistent manner as we try to follow the Lord in His ways. But when God acts, then He always acts as a simple being who is never racked by internal contradictions. He is never double-minded in how He acts, in distinction from us, who constantly need to struggle against double-mindedness. And now we can look at this Lord's Day with a renewed appreciation of what it tells us, not only about ourselves, but also about our God. God gives us everything that we have now and everything that we had before the fall into sin. God gave us everything we needed. And therefore, he could also demand from us obedience and love in return for the love which he showed to us first. The Lord had a right to the love which he demanded from us. The more that is given, the more that is required as well. We can understand this in our human relationships too. As brothers and sisters in the Lord together, we are required to love one another, 
to look out for the best interests of the other and serve one another in Christian love as best we can. This is all the more so in our marriage relationships where husband and wife have promised each other to love one another in good times and bad and to be there for one another in all situations. This is a vow that is made in marriage and this is what provides the foundation for the love of a husband and wife. It goes beyond emotions and feelings but has a firm basis in the vow and in what the Lord himself also expects from husband and wife. Now, if that applies to us as men and women, how much more does it not apply to us in our relationship with our Creator, the Lord God? For He has given us everything, even our very existence, and therefore He has the full right to demand that we love Him alone and desire to serve Him above all else. We are completely dependent also in our day-to-day -day existence upon the love of the Lord. He can come with that uncompromising requirement that we love Him in turn just as He has already loved us so much. He provides us with the example of love. In like manner, we must love Him. That is what our life must consist of, loving God above all else. God has the perfect right to ask this of us because we are the works of His hands alone. We have not made ourselves, but He has made us. And He made us in His image so that we would reflect His glory and imitate Him and follow Him in His love and fellowship, which He has shown in Himself in the three persons of the Trinity. Just as the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son, so also we must love Him and one another. That is what true life consists of, complete and total loving of God and of one another. God had made man in such a way that he would be able to live in this way. He had given man everything he needed to love totally and perfectly. He also gave a specific command to Adam and Eve that they should obey to show that they loved him above all else. If they decided not to obey that command, then they would suffer the ultimate punishment of death. And that is what happened. For some of God's creatures resisted him and did not want to love him and returned the love which he had shown to them. Part of the angels exalted themselves against God, including Satan and his followers. It became the aim of Satan to drag man along with him in his rebellion against God. This is also reflected in what we confess in answer 9, that man sinned at the instigation of the devil. This is not an excuse for man, but it does paint a complete picture of what happened when man fell into sin. 
He did not do it in a vacuum, but through being enticed in the wrong, sinful, and hateful direction against God by the evil one who wanted to make man fall. We did not resist the evil one as we should have in Adam, our representative. We fell for his deception and desired to be like God. We were not content to worship God and honor Him by being obedient to Him, but we wanted to exalt ourselves at God's expense. Through that act of deliberate disobedience, as the Catechism rightly calls it, disobedience that was done with thought and reflection, not simply a quick impulse, but something that was deliberate, through that act, we robbed ourselves of the excellent gifts which God had given us. We rejected what God had given us. We rejected His love and His kindness. Even though God did everything for us, we turned our backs against Him and wanted nothing to do with Him, but followed the evil one instead. In view of all this, we cannot keep asking whether God is doing man an injustice. Certainly not. For if God would not require us to listen to Him and to love Him with our whole heart, soul, and mind, then He would not be true to Himself, to His goodness and love, and also to His justice and holiness. We would be asking God to deny Himself and His perfect simplicity. If God would not maintain His requirement that we should live for Him and love Him, then there would also be no more basis for life with the Lord at all. If God would just throw aside His commandments and ease up on the demand to live in holiness and righteousness, then there would be no basis for any morality, for any righteousness, for any holiness, for any goodness. If God would not stick to His perfect standards, we could also never expect any true help from Him, no salvation whatsoever. That would all become impossible because God would have become someone who could not be trusted, who would not maintain His work. But thanks be to God, he has maintained His perfect standards of holiness and righteousness. He has not softened on them at all, but has maintained them completely and perfectly. And therefore, He also needs to punish disobedience and apostasy with His wrath. God shows His justice by punishing sin, both original sin and our actual sins. Original sin is the sin that we committed in Adam, and which has had such terrible consequences in our lives. It has caused us to be born in sin and to have a sinful nature and condition so that we are incapable of doing what is right in God's sight. This is the result of our own robbing of ourselves so that we destroyed God's good gifts towards us. God is terribly displeased with this original sin, and therefore He punishes it. 
And God also executes His wrath and punishment against our actual sins, the sins we commit every day, sins of going against God's will, of thinking that we know better than God, of exalting ourselves at the expense of others, of seeking to please ourselves rather than God, of putting down our neighbor, of not finding our contentment in God alone, and so many other sins we do. God does not just overlook those sins that we commit every day and act as if they didn't happen, but He sees them all. They all hurt Him very much and cause Him great offense and pain. They offend His holiness and righteousness, and therefore He must punish them with a just judgment both now and eternally, as we confess in the Catechism. We read from the prophecy of Nahum, which gives a vivid picture of God in both His wrath and His love and mercy. This prophecy has the title, An Oracle Concerning Nineveh. The city of Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrians, who were the superpower of the ancient world for quite a few years. They were the ones who carried off the Israelites, the northern kingdom, into exile. And they were the ones who stood at Jerusalem's gates and mocked the God of Israel and said that he would not be able to save them from the Assyrian army. But as we know, God did save them and completely destroyed them before Jerusalem. The Lord raised up the Assyrians to punish His people and inflict upon them His jealous wrath and anger for going against His will and rejecting Him as their God. But now the time has come for the Assyrians to be punished as well by the Lord because they did not serve Him, even though the Lord used them as His instrument to punish the Israelites. The prophecy of Nahum begins by describing God as a jealous and avenging God. He takes vengeance upon his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. His enemies are those who hate him and do not want to do his will. He is a jealous God which means in this context that he is a God who is very upset at what the Assyrians have done to his people and therefore he avenges himself upon them by punishing them in his wrath and anger. Although his people had deserved his punishment, yet the Assyrians should not think that they are innocent of wrongdoing in what they did to the Israelites. And so the Lord is described here as an avenging God. And then in the very next verse, in verse 3, we have a reminder of God's compassion and mercy. For God is a simple being who is united in all of His attributes and always acts in harmony with Himself and His character. The Lord is slow to anger, the prophet reminds us. Although we read here about God's wrath and anger, this is not something that He does eagerly and with relish, for He is a compassionate God 
who is slow to anger. He desires to show his mercy and kindness. Therefore, he is slow to anger, but he is also a just God. And therefore, he will by no means clear the guilty, as we read in the next line. Those who have transgressed his law must be punished, for his perfect standards must be adhered to. God cannot deny himself by not maintaining his perfect justice. In the next few verses, the prophet speaks about the display of God's wrath as this shows itself in creation. He causes the whirlwind and the storm. He rebukes the sea and makes the river go dry. He causes Bashan and Carmel to wither and the bloom of Lebanon to wither. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. From time to time, we see evidence of this in devastating earthquakes which strike in various parts of the world. Sometimes earthquakes result in tsunamis, and the resulting devastation is incredible. Thousands of people are killed, and the long-term consequences are felt for a long time. Such earthquakes and other disasters that happen in this world do not happen by chance, but they come from God. We know from Revelation 16 that all these things must come. And they are signs of the wrath of God. This is an example of God punishing the world because of its sin. Now, also in our time in history. In the Catechism, we confess that God will punish sin both now and eternally. The eternal punishment is still to come. But the punishment that happens in our time happens in many different ways including natural disasters of various kinds. In Revelation 16, it is clear that God also sends these plagues not only to punish, but also to warn the people and to make them realize that they need to repent from their sin and turn to Him. We read, for example, in Revelation 16, verse 9, they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. Here we see again the unity of God's attributes. Before the coming of Jesus Christ on the clouds of heaven, there is always still opportunity to repent and turn in faith to the living God. God sends his wrath upon the world, but in wrath he also remembers his mercy and desires that men should turn from their wickedness and repent from their sins. This is what happened the previous time that Nineveh heard about the wrath of God which was coming to them. When the prophet Jonah brought the message of God's wrath, then the people of Nineveh repented in sackcloth and ashes, and the Lord had mercy upon them. 
and turned from his fierce anger against their sins. Jonah was upset by that since he thought that Nineveh would be destroyed, that God's enemies would be wiped from the face of the earth. He could not imagine that God would have mercy upon the Ninevites, but God did because they responded in faith to the word that was spoken to them. But there also comes a time when there will be no more opportunity to repent. We see a picture of this final judgment and wrath in the destruction of the Canaanites when Israel took over the land. The sin of the Canaanites had reached its full measure, and the Lord determined that they must suffer the full fury of His wrath against their sins. And He used the Israelites as His instrument to punish them by destroying them. Yet even then, there were some who were saved because they acknowledged the Lord. Think of Rahab who helped the spies and praised the God of Israel. Now in the prophecy of Nahum, it is clear that the time of the destruction of Nineveh has come. The Lord made an end of Nineveh because of their wickedness, and His destruction was so complete that there were archaeologists in the past who did not even believe that Nineveh had even ever existed until its remains were discovered in the 19th century. The Lord gave a command concerning Nineveh that they would have no more descendants, for they would be destroyed from the face of the earth. Their grave has been prepared because they were vile and ripe for receiving God's full wrath. In this message of God's wrath against sin, we may also hear the good news. And so we come to the second point. The second point may sound strange to us. How can there be good news in the message about the wrath of God? How can we see any hope or salvation when we realize how seriously God takes our sins and how guilty we are before Him? It is true that we do not see any hope in ourselves or any reason for optimism for who we are. But rather we see that only in our God. For the God who made all things, the earth, the heaven, and we ourselves, He is the God who is perfectly good, righteous, and holy. He is the God who hates sin and all wickedness. He is filled with wrath, not because He is capricious or vindictive or hateful, not at all. On the contrary, he is filled with wrath because of his love and goodness, because he hates the ugliness of sin and wickedness and evil. He is filled with revulsion towards the wickedness that happens in this world and in our lives. He is so good and righteous that he cannot tolerate any sin at all but rightly demands that we keep His will perfectly and that all sin be punished both now and eternally. This God 
who is so good and gracious. He is the one who brings to his people the good news and the glad tidings of remembering his mercy and kindness at the same time as visiting his wrath against our sins. And this is only possible because of the miracle of the coming of Jesus Christ, his only Son. God sent him into this world in order that he might become man and be made sin for us so that he would endure the full weight of God's wrath against our sins. It is Jesus Christ who has been punished by God with the everlasting punishment of body and soul. He endured this punishment when he was on the cross and cried out in agony and suffering, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endured this for us and in our place. In giving Jesus Christ as our Savior, God has shown very concretely that He is a simple being who is able to show both His mercy and His wrath at the very same time and fulfill both of those attributes perfectly. We are reminded of what we confess in the Belgic Confession, Article 20. Let's turn to that article, which you can find in the Book of Praise on page 507. And the title of Article 20 is The Justice and Mercy of God in Christ. And there we confess... We believe that God, who is perfectly merciful and just, sent His Son to assume that nature in which disobedience has been committed, to make satisfaction in that same nature, and to bear the punishment of sin by His most bitter passion and death. God therefore manifested His justice against His Son, when he laid our iniquity on him and poured out his goodness and mercy on us who were guilty and worthy of damnation. Out of a most perfect love, he gave his son to die for us and he raised him for our justification that through him we might obtain immortality and life eternal. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of God's wrath. All the wrath of God has been poured out on His beloved Son so that we might experience God's grace and mercy. We would never have been able to survive God's wrath. Jesus Christ took the curse that was upon us and He endured the punishment that we deserved. How are we to respond to such an amazing gift? We can only respond to God in love and devotion to Him alone. We must love Him as He has loved us so much and given us everything we needed to be able to serve Him. We receive these gifts once again through the working 
of the Spirit of Christ in our lives. We had squandered God's gifts, but He gives them to us again in Jesus Christ and His Spirit working in us. Let us make use of these gifts throughout our life, in all circumstances of life, to praise and glorify God in everything that we do. Let us love Him and serve Him always and dedicate our life to Him, never swerving to the right or to the left, but always going to Him and depending upon His grace and mercy all the days of our life. Amen. Let us now sing together Psalm 90, the stanzas 5, 7, and 8. <clears throat> 